Um, we are in a, a series, uh, scholars are making some changes to the PowerPoint so we won't have our, our title slide up here. Um, but we're in a series called Unleash. We're looking at the first uh, eight chapters, really seven chapters and some change of the book of Acts, looking at uh, when the apostles and the disciples and the early followers of Jesus are still in Jerusalem. It's in the first few months of Christianity. They're trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ in their daily life? What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ and be a witness of his to the world? And we've, we've watched that. We've watched them engage um, uh, crowds um, that God has worked through them to do miracles, whether it's speaking in tongues or healing a lame person. They've had an opportunity to address thousands and thousands, um, and, 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 and out of that came thousands and thousands of converts. We know that the church has gotten really close. They're meeting together daily. They're taking care of each other's needs. Um, and it just seems like God is working so powerfully. But we're already seeing bumps in the road. Because we're seeing, number one, that, that, that the Christians are being persecuted. The apostles have already been arrested at this point twice. Um, when we left off last week, um, the apostles have been beaten. All the apostles were beaten um, for, pre, uh, for preaching Christ in the temple and told to stop doing that. And they immediately after the beating, they went out and they, they were still proclaiming Christ in the temple. So we see the authorities, the most, the, the most powerful men in the land, uh, backed by the most powerful army in the world, the Romans, uh, were, were starting to oppose Christianity. But on top of that, we saw a few weeks ago that, that even, uh, even an obstacle for the church were Christians itself, themselves. Because Ananias and Sapphira were beginning to lie. And, and, and uh, lie about how much money they had given. And it was bringing unrighteousness and problems into the church, um, uh, pride and self-righteousness and things like that. And so, and so the apostles addressed that. And if you remember that moment, it's, it's kind of an astounding moment where they're both struck dead because of their lies. And so we see that even though the church is going out into the world, it's beginning to meet some obstacles. And if you were one of these early disciples, the obstacle that would loom largest in your mind was persecution. If you had been in the room when the 12 apostles had come back after being beaten, this wasn't just a slap on the wrist. This wasn't like going to the principal because you got in a fight and you had to get a paddling. I don't know if they were allowed to do that when you guys were... I, I'm not that old, but I feel like even maybe that you guys weren't allowed to be paddled, but I got paddled. Uh, and and Because uh, um, <laughs> I won a fight, right? Uh, anyway, <laughs> not really. <laughs> I wasn't a fight. I didn't win. Uh, the, uh, but but, um, but it, this wasn't like going to the principal and getting paddling. You know, this wasn't like your parents taking a belt to you. This was being beaten. This was ta- having a rod, and your back was beaten, so it was bloody. And so for days afterwards, you, your back was burning. It was aching. You had wounds. Can you imagine being in the room when the apostles came back from being uh, condemned by the Sanhedrin, being beaten by the very man who had, who had uh, uh, delivered Jesus over to death, how would you be feeling in that moment? You'd be feeling frightened. If the apostles were beaten, if they're being threatened, these men who, who so obviously have the power of God, these men who walked with Jesus Christ, if they're not being protected from this type of persecution, then I'm not going to be protected from that. The prospects before your mind of your property being taken, of you being taken to jail, of you being beaten, of your family being persecuted, of you losing your job, of you having to move, of all these things happening. And and, and all of a sudden, in your mind, the biggest obstacle to your life and the biggest obstacle to your faith and the biggest obstacle to the people of God um, and and the mission of God in this world would be that the, the Jewish leaders opposed you. It would be the persecution that you saw over the horizon. But I think we learn from the rest of the Bible, and I think we learn from our own experience, that the greatest obstacle to the church is not the persecution of the church by non-Christians. 
the greatest obstacle that these early disciples faced, and the greatest obstacle that we face, and the greatest obstacle that Christians have faced throughout history has been division. But the greatest problem that we face, and get this, the greatest problem to the mission of God, is that Christians don't treat each other well. It's that churches divide. They split among ethnic lines. They split, they split among preferences. They split among theological differences. They split among political differences. But even if you're not even thinking about churches, just think about personally. That the biggest threat is often um, not necessarily the big things that you see, like big churches splitting and whatnot, but that you often don't get along with other Christians. I mean, Jesus, in John 17, He says that the way that people will know that He's from the Father, the best way to know that Jesus really was sent by God the Father to this earth, that Jesus is who He says He is, Jesus says, it's not by theological argument, it's not by philosophical proof, it's by the way you treat one another, by the way you love each other. Jesus, moments before He's arrested, hours before He's killed, He says that the greatest way that the church can witness to the world it's not with intelligence, it's not with great systems, it's not with having a large church, it's with loving each other. Because he knew that the greatest danger facing the church, the greatest danger facing the mission of God, was that Christians would turn on each other. And if you've ever read any of the letters that Paul wrote to churches, almost every single one of them, even the ones that he deals with great theological, uh, heady concepts like in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, that he always circles back around to how Christians should treat each other. And what seems to be, sometimes Paul lets you know this is happening, sometimes you have to read between the lines, but it seems that in every case, what Paul is dealing with is just theological error, but really what he's getting at is he's getting at the churches aren't treating, I mean, that Christians aren't treating each other well. That they're not acting lovingly. That they're dividing. That they're being bitter. That they're not being generous. They're being greedy. So if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and if Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, if they look at the church and say the biggest problem is division, the biggest problem is that we don't love each other, then, then shouldn't we buy into that? We've been talking this semester about how we are all called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ to the whole world, just like He sent out the early disciples to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. So we are sent out to our workplaces, in your roommate situations, with your friends, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. That's part of what it means to be a disciple, is that you are on mission for Him. And we need to take seriously that the greatest threat to that is not having the right answers when somebody asks you a hard question about faith, but about how you're treating another Christian. And the problem here is not just that it's a huge obstacle. It's that it's, it's, that it's a huge obstacle, and it's so easy to divide. It's so easy to treat another Christian without love. Every single, in this person, every single person in this room, I would bet, has in the past three days done something unloving to another Christian. Said something unloving to another Christian. Had unloving thoughts towards another Christian. I mean, think about this. You know, I mean, you know if you think about, for example, murder, that's probably, I hope it's not like a huge temptation of all of yours. I hope that it's not true that every single person in the room in the last three days has murdered someone. 
right? Like, like if, if, if murder were the big problem that the church were facing, I would feel pretty good about it, right? Because I, I haven't been tempted towards that. But division and anger and greediness and not forgiving people, not being gracious, if those are the biggest threats, then that's a pretty big danger because I feel like I do that constantly. It's just so astounding. It's 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 so stark to me because, um, you know, I, I've said this before. But my father spent about half his life as a non-Christian, as a non uh, as an agnostic, and he will tell you. And I think this is both uh, interesting and sad. But he will tell you that the people who have treated him worse in his life have been have been Christians. That his non-Christian friends often treated him better than his Christian friends. That's something to wrestle with. Because if part of our witness is how we love each other, and then I would bet that for many of you, the people who wounded you most deeply, who've hurt you most profoundly, have been people who claim to be followers of Christ. A parent who neglected you or abused you. A friend who kind of just decided to to start ignoring you. An ex-boyfriend or girlfriend who cheated. They all claim to be followers of Christ, but they end up hurting you deeply. So you get this tension here. But the biggest obstacle to the kingdom of God is division, and yet one of the easiest things for us to fall into is division. And so when you see the church expanding in the early chapters of Acts, we should start expecting that the church is going to have these type of divisions. And lo and behold, they do. And so in Acts chapter 6, um, we find out how um, this, this... Now, undoubtedly, there's been hurt feelings and, and all these little things, but we, we get... Uh, again, Luke's not telling us every single thing that happened in the Christian community. He's given us highlights. Um, but if you're tracking, this is just the second time that we find out that there's problems with the church. First being Ananias and Sapphira which was unrighteousness in the church. And this, this time, the second time, we find out that it's division in the church. Um, and so, verse 6, chapter 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, um, you might understand what's going on there, and that's understandable because there's a lot going on there that we're not uh, often familiar with. The first off is, is that unlike the, the, the pagans and the Romans, um, unlike the way they viewed the poor, the Jews, because of the Old Testament, because of the way that God spoke and the prophets against those who are greedy and who neglected the poor, because of um, the laws that, that commanded that you take care of those who were less needy, that they, it was a big part of their religious life to help out those who were in need. And so there were often weekly and sometimes daily distributions of food and clothing to help those who were without. And, and it often um, took place, it was often organized by the synagogues. And often the people who were helped out the most were widows. Why? Just some critical thinking. Why were widows the ones who were often the ones who, who most often needed help? I'm sorry, say it again. They had no means to provide for themselves. They had no means to provide for themselves. Uh, why? Why was there no means? 
yeah, when their husbands die, uh, died, often uh, they lost their property or that they, they, they just weren't getting an income. Um, sometimes this can be uh, women whose husbands died and they have no kids. So there's no retirement system. There's no pension plan. There's no Social Security and Medicare. The way you were taken care of in, 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 your older, in your old age was you were taken care of by your kids. So if you didn't have kids or if your kids didn't care about you, then you're out of luck. Another dynamic going on here is that you're in Jerusalem where a lot of people, a lot of, uh, see, 10% of the Roman Empire were Jewish. That's astounding. That's 10%. One out of 10 Romans, um, people living in the Roman Empire, not necessarily citizens, but people living in the Roman Empire were Jewish. And so a lot of them lived all over the place. There were huge Jewish communities in Rome, in Alexandria, in Egypt, um, and in other places. And so a lot of times when they got older, they wanted to return to Jerusalem, the Holy Land. And so they would return there. But that meant that their families, their kids who were working, were often back in the cities that they had grown up in. And so you had the case of older people who were living uh, hundreds of miles and weeks and weeks worth of, uh, of distance kind of for, uh, for communication away from their kids. Husband dies, the wife has, ha, has no easy access to her kids, and so all of a sudden she has no way to get help. And so in the Jewish community, the way that this was that this was taken care of was by organizing um, uh, kind of da- uh, daily and weekly distributions of food and clothing. And so they would help out the widows and the needy by giving them food and clothing. Um, but what else is going on? So it's not just that, but the Christians seem to have picked up that pretty early. So at this point, everybody who's converted has converted from the Jewish religion. And so they would kind of take this practice because it's in the scriptures and they would keep it going. So it seems like part of, if you remember in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, it said that the, the Christians kind of had everything in common. They would sell land and, and, and distribute, the, the apostles would distribute the money um, to those who are in need. And so we kind, of get in, we kind of get an indication that what's going on here is that they're, they're distributing it mainly to the widows. Those would be the people in big need. And so they're distributing the food, but there's a complaint that arises from the Hellenist against the, the Hebraic. And what that means, um, and it's confusing, but that because 10% of the Roman Empire were, was uh, Jewish, you had a lot of people, a lot of Jews living throughout the empire who were nowhere close to kind of um, to, to Palestine. And so they were around and living in Greek culture. So they began speaking predominantly Greek. Um, and while people who were living in Palestine still spoke predominantly Aramaic, which is their cousin of Hebrew. And so you had this cultural divide. So some Jews lived and spoke very much like Greeks, except that they followed the Jewish religion. Other Jews lived and spoke very much like Jews. <laughs> and so there was this cultural divide. And, and you kind of began to, you, you can see tensions, partly because um, there's a cultural divide, but also partly because uh, you, you get some hints in Jewish writings that, they, that um, the people who spoke Hebrew saw themselves as being truly loyal to their ancestors. While the people who started speaking Greek and living like the Greeks um, were kind of betraying it because they're starting to live a little bit too much like the pagans. And so you get this, you get this um, distinction that arises, you get this difference not necessarily full, uh, full-fledged animosity, but you just get this cultural divide that arises. And so all of a sudden, when they start giving out the food in this area, the widows who, who were predominantly Greek-speaking Jews weren't getting food. They weren't getting enough food, at the very least. And so they started complaining, because the people who were giving out the food were predominantly Aramaic-speaking Jews. And so they sort of feel like they were left over. They were passed over. They weren't getting enough food. By the way, this would have been particularly um, problematic because you would, have, you would have had much fewer of these 
um, Hellenistic of these Greek-speaking Jews than you had of Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking Jews. You had much fewer of them, so they didn't have as many people to help take care of the widows. And also, the ones who were predominantly Greek-speaking were probably the ones whose kids were uh, in another part of the Roman Empire, which meant that they didn't have their kids nearby to take care of them, so they, they especially needed the church to take care of them. And so Luke lets you in on this, this early division that for whatever reason, we're not told why, whatever reason, that the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were not getting enough food. Now this is a matter of life and death, right? This isn't just a preference issue. This was they were not getting the food they needed to survive. They were going hungry. They were starving. They were perhaps beginning to be malnourished because even though the church apparently had enough resources, they just weren't getting it. They were coming to the table. They were asking for it. It just wasn't, it wasn't coming to them for some reason. We're not given a lot of details. And so you can see the concern here. So number one, think about what's going on in the community. How do you think this is playing out in the community, in the Christian community, this dispute? <coughs> I think it'll, it's the first thing I think about is it's probably definitely, probably definitely driving um, the members of the church to to divide with themselves to find their identity in whether or not they are a Greek speaking Jew or an Aramaic speaking Jew, um, and it's got to be generating animosity between the two, resentment, um, and it's forced and it's forcing them out of you know needing to take care of people who aren't being what they need. Um, to find their identity in something other than what they have in common. Yeah. I mean, notice that Luke doesn't tell us how it happens. You know, and you could think about all the, all the different ways, if you've been in these situations where there's, it's kind of unclear exactly how the problem arose and whose fault it was, and you could start to see how the church would start to divide over this. That You have some people saying, you're just not giving us food, and they're saying, no, we all food, you just didn't come at the right time, or we ran out of food, or, you know, I, I don't know all the reasons it's happening, but you can see how animosity can start building, because each side can start pointing fingers. Maybe, well, we're taking care of the people that we know who aren't your why, why aren't the other Greek-speaking Jew, Jewish Christians helping take care of you guys? You, know, you can start seeing how this divide would, would really um, start to amplify and cause a lot of animosity. How do you think non-Christians would view this? By the way, it's generally true that non-Christians are aware of our fights. They don't see us as kind of this homogenous blob of people and they don't know what's going on. They would have to wonder why people with such a who claim to have such a strong faith would be divided at all. Really. Yeah, why? <clears throat> Can we turn that air down? It's hot. Is it hot to you guys? Yes. yes. At least from the Jewish perspective, God is one. So if you're following the, the Jewish God, then you are, should only be receiving one set of revelation. If you've got, if you've got it in divide like that, then something, something's getting miscommunicated there. Yeah. So there's one God, and you're all following that one God, so why are you being divide, beginning to divide this way? Yes. If from an outside perspective, you're saying that there's... Um, a truth, but you guys you can't agree on what the truth is, then obviously it isn't real. Hmm. 
from the outside perspective. Yeah, so you can call into question the, the, the truth of what you're, you're uh, claiming to follow, you know. I mean, you, you guys are claiming that Jesus is Lord, that He's controlling your life, that the very Spirit of God has, coming to you, has come into your lives, and that you guys are being directed by God in some sense, and you can even take care of your own widows. The Jews aren't having problems doing this. Not, I mean, the non-Christian Jews aren't having a problem, but you guys are having a problem doing this. You claim that Jesus Christ is the most important part of your identity, and yet here you guys are fighting over, uh, dividing over lang- uh, uh, lines of language and culture. You see how that would play out. I mean, you can imagine that some of the people in Jerusalem still at this point would be familiar with the teachings of Jesus. You can imagine how that's going to open up the church to criticism. You guys claim to follow the guy that says to love your neighbors. And you guys can't even do this. The guy who spoke so much about money and the need to be generous and you can't do this. You can start to see how this reflects very poorly not just on Christians, but on what Christians believe, on the truth of their faith. It starts to reflect very poorly on Jesus. Paul, when he's writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, and they're dividing over different things, he says, is Christ divided? In other words, if you guys claim to be the body of Christ, and he's not divided, why are you divided? And Paul gives you a hint that how we live as Christians reflects something about Jesus. To the world. And if the Christians can't take care of the most vulnerable, most needy people in their midst, not because they didn't have the resources, the implications of the church did have the resources, but because they're caught up in, in issues of culture and language and ethnicity and finger pointing, then what does that say about Jesus Christ? You can start to see the concern for this, how non-Christians could use this, how they could see this and, and, and begin to realize, or begin to not realize, uh, but begin to, to, to believe and conclude that Christianity is not all it's cracked up, cra- cracked, up <laughs> cracked up to be. <laughs> Scott, we're going to edit that bit out. Okay? Uh, the, uh, um, that, they, that they can begin to think that these guys aren't genuine followers of Jesus. And that maybe, even though they make all these claims about if you come to faith, you will get the Spirit of God, that maybe that's all make-believe. And so this is a serious issue to the church, even though Luke compresses it in the gist of verse. This is just a serious issue. It's a matter of life and death to these widows, and it's a matter of the witness of the church to the world around it. Because it's very clearly not following out Jesus' command to love one another, Jesus' command to not divide over these types of issues, and practically Jesus' command to take care of those who are needy and vulnerable. And so the apostles are faced with this obstacle, this problem. By the way, from this point forward, the church kind of stays divided. In almost every, almost every case we see a snapshot of what's going on in the church at, at large, there's division. And so this division, even though we're getting this, this, this one case of it, it's going to be with the church. The church is going to have to figure out how do you deal with divisions, how do, you, how do you deal with these types of problems as disciples. And you guys are still dealing with those types of uh, problems in your lives, in your home congregations. Um, Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full distribution of the disciples and said, um, the full number of the disciples, sorry, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. By the way, um, 
Well, let me finish reading. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among your you seven men of good repute, full of, the, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, I want you to put yourself just for a moment into this situation. You're in a church where widows are going hungry because they're not getting food. And you kind of get the, the indication that part of it's an administration issue. That, that, they, that they just haven't figured out a good system of how to get food around to everybody. Because the apostles address it by coming up with a kind of a, a better system. But you have the apostles standing up and they're saying, we're not going to, we, we can't spend our time making sure widows get food. We need to devote ourselves to preaching and to ministry. Wouldn't that strike you as heartless? Let me be honest. If you're in a church and there's widows going hungry, I'm not just talking about they don't have you know, a good variety of food, but they're going hungry. And the preacher stands up and says, I could devote my time to this, but I need to devote my time to preaching the word and ministry. Y'all take care of it. What would you think about that preacher? Hypocrite. Who said that? I know, okay. Um, hypocrite. Nothing worth saying out loud. Okay, good. Don't say it. Please. Thank you. Edit that part out too. Uh, um, why did the apostles make this decision? I think, I think at least in part for the longevity of the church. The churches have to be able to exist without the direct control of the apostles on every single matter. Because um, I mean, this is something they should be able to fix themselves. Um, this that'd be like you know if, if we were all Catholics and every time someone got mad we called we called like the Archbishop of our area or the Pope or whatever. It's something that you should be able to hit, that they should be able to handle internally. And if they don't get to where they can, the, the church is going to die as soon as they're gone. Okay, so kind of a longevity that they need to learn how to deal with their own issues. What else? Why do you think the apostles made this decision? Follow up on what he said. Probably in the same manner to sort of not only get things done, but to sort of teach them how to be engaged with one another in the way that's godly. Yeah, so to make kind of force them to engage. What else? What do you see here, Adam? The gospel is what's important. And I'm not saying that ministering the widow isn't. I'm just saying the gospel here is far and away more important. And if, if the gospel is understood, then this one happened. And so uh, their goal right then is to spread the gospel, to share the good news to everyone, uh, to, to inhibit that by, by focusing on such a small event would be wrong, as, as Peter said. Mm-hmm. As they said. The, um, yeah, one more. Uh, it just seems like one of the first places where we see other people getting invited into the work of the kingdom. Like, hmm. So it, it's, it's drawing more people into that kind of leadership position. We have roles. We need other people to step into these roles. And it's creating that space. Yeah. Yeah, everybody, you know, everybody has a gift. Everybody needs to get involved. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, um, I, I don't want to word it exactly like you did and you even caught yourself. I wouldn't say that, that kind of preaching and teaching the gospel is way more important um, than making sure that widows eat. I would just say that it, that the church, um, that both are important. And so they, the apostles themselves have been given a calling to go out and preach the gospel. Um, and so they, they find other people who have other gifts to do this. 
Um, I, I just find this uh, very instructive about how important the apostles found the preaching and teaching and prayer, preaching and teaching of the word and prayer and ministry, that, that even though there was this immediate, very serious need, that they kind of stepped back and said, other people need to do this. Because this is important, but it's also important that we continue to preach and teach and do ministry. Because um, that's what they've been called to do. Um, if you know, We can spend a lot of time talking about in scriptures how, not a, uh, this is a cliche, but it's true that not every need that you encounter is something you're called to. In this case, the apostles kind of dealt with this, but it wasn't their calling to sit and make sure every day that the exact amount of food went to the exact amount of people. So how did they handle it? They said to a point, seven men uh, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. What, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Are these just church words? It's like on a like a job uh, description, like have a positive attitude, and like you know, like you know that's not something they're screening for. It's just boilerplate, you know, because they don't know what your attitude is from the first meeting. Um, and so, you know, is this just something like that? Just something they put on the resume, make it look good, make it look spiritual? What does it mean to choose men who are? are full of wisdom and full of the Spirit. Uh, Mar- Marshall beat you by like, a millimeter. Like they're going to do their job right and do it to the best of their ability um, and just ensure that they get the job done. And like a full of the Spirit, I guess they're just not going to give in. So like if they do come across a difficult situation, you know, they're going to be guided by the Spirit and they're not just going to close in mm-hmm. and give up. Especially considering his volunteer, you know, there's not the incentive of money, so it is out of the goodness of their heart. So having that spirit is um, very crucial. Hmm. There. No, it's right. Oh, good. What else? Are you raising your hand? No. Okay. Anyone else? What, what do you think it means to be full of the full of the spirit and full of wisdom? Yeah, my house. Oh, you didn't raise your hand. Yes, Leah. <laughs> This is focusing on the good repute part that comes before it. Those people who have already established themselves in this church community as being wise and full of spirit as well. So they're going to be looking for people who others already know about. So like the apostles, they'll have this reputation for making good decisions. Hmm. So they, yeah, so people with good reputation. Um, yeah, that's really what I was going to say. Man. <laughs> was it? <laughs> they're trying to de-escalate a conflict so it's necessary that they be guided by the spirit and be full of wisdom because the decisions that they make can shape like the future of the church yeah you know the, the apostles are up on a moment that they know could kill the church I mean think about if this went unchecked you, ha- you would have widows starving you would have the church splitting and all of this when the church is still very small still in one location it would have been very public this could have been, from a human standpoint, the death of the Jesus movement. And, and the apostles, though, know that they also, to use what Jamie was saying, they also can't kind of be pulled into these administrative tasks because they still are called to be witnesses of the whole world. So they've got to figure out some way to deal with it. So they appoint men to kind of uh, de-escalate, so some men to, to, um, um, uh, to, to, to kind of get in there and make sure that this problem is taken care of. And they choose men who are full of the Spirit. Which you th- if you think about it, that's not just... Um, that you know, you can't just reduce that to saying how we would say they're spiritual. In the scriptures, this is used as, as people who are being guided and directed by God. You get the picture that Paul wants to choose people whom he can trust to do godly things in a very difficult situation. 
to make godly decisions in the midst of, 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 of a situation that one spark could set the whole thing off. And the only thing he can trust that situation with are men who are so in touch with God, so guided by God, that their very actions are godly actions, that their very decisions are godly decisions, that they're not motivated by their own position. They're not motivated by their own reputation. They're not motivated by, by what they're going to get out of this. They're only motivated and directed by what they think God wants them to do. And wisdom here um, is, is, is a gift of God. In James it says if you desire wisdom, if you like it and want it, pray for it. It's something that God gives His people to be able to discern how, what, what, uh, how to make the best choices in difficult, difficult situations. So you see Paul, I mean, sorry, you see Peter and the apostles wanting to appoint men who were so in touch with God, so gifted by God, that in this very difficult situation they can make the right decisions. Notice who, um, notice who he chooses. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, by the way. Um, this is the first record we have of somebody who was a Gentile who became a Christian. The difference between them and the people who came later is that, they, this, that Nicholas would have first become a Jew and then became a Christian. Um, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Um, now what you might miss in this is that all of these men had Greek names. What's the, what's the significance of that? Every single one of these names is Greek, yes. Um. The disciple or the deacons were chosen to administer to the Hellenists, the um, Greek group of Christians. Well, they were they not. They were chosen to distribute all the food right. to both the the, the Greek speaking and the Hebrew speaking. But yeah, go ahead. Right, but the um, the issue was rising up um, about the Hellenists who were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so flesh that out. What what. Why is that significant? Um, at least in part because they know they have experienced what it is to have their people to have to be neglected. Um, so the, the people they know because they're, they're probably in a community like there's probably even before this a community of Greek-speaking Jews in the area. There is, and so they they know what it's like for people who they know and love to be neglected. Um, and so they know the problems that come through, I think. So maybe men who have experienced this and know what can be done to avoid it. So they've experienced it. So they kind of know firsthand what's going on, Adam? A couple of things. One, 12, 12 Jewish dudes just chose 12 Greek to, to lead it, uh, which is an example. Hmm. Uh, but also just reestablishing the fact that the gospel is to all nations and not not just to a select people and not just to the Israelites. Okay. There's something else. What's the significance of, 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 speak, of choosing these men who are all uh, kind of Greek-speaking Jew, Jewish Christians of that culture in a situation where the complaint was coming out of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians? It's so that people need to relate easier, like more easily than people that... They could relate. Adam was saying, I mean, they're relating with people that were of the same group. Yeah, but, so relating, but, but think about how much this diffuses the situation. 
The apostles choose men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, from the very group of people who felt like they were being offended, who, who were offended at this. The group of people who were angry about this, frustrated, felt like they were left out, were the very people that, that from, who, from among whom the apostles choose who's going to get to distribute the food. So think about how quickly that this, this diffuses the situation. Because if you're a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian, and all of a sudden it's your friend who's now deciding who, get, who gets what food, it becomes much harder to make this an ethnic issue. Because it's much harder to make this, uh, to stay angry and frustrated. Because it's much easier to trust that your widows are being paid attention to. That your widows are getting the attention that they need. The food they need. The clothing they need. What the apostles do here, and what is a very wise move, is they choose from among the people who were most upset, wise, wise people out of that group, to diffuse the situation. And it worked. It says in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You had a lot of priests living in Jerusalem. A lot of them didn't have jobs. They were most uh, like kind of t- in, in the temple. They were not very well known. So this is most likely um, priests who, who, who weren't very well known. These were not like the high priest or the second in command or something who, who converted. But notice what they do. They come into the situation. They entrust godly men with the situation. And they choose them very wisely from the people who were upset and offended. And it diffuses the situation. The division goes away. We hear no more about this, this type of divide. We hear no more that the widows aren't getting the food that they need. It seems like in this decision that the apostles have taken a very serious obstacle to the faith and healed it. Taken a very serious threat to the early church and its growth and removed it. Now, what does this mean for you? Because every single one of you, again, I'm willing to bet this, every single one of you in the past few days has, ha, has done something rude or harsh to another Christian, or another Christian has done something rude or harsh to you. And I'm willing to bet that some of you in this room, right now, if you were to start to list people you were at odds with, people you were upset with, people you're not, you're not on speaking terms with, that you would list Christians. Maybe some non-Christians are amongst that. But what do we, as, 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 as people living 2,000 years after this, what do we learn from this? And I think there's, there's several things here about how we deal with division. I think the, the first thing that I see is that the apostles took division seriously. Like We, we often don't take division seriously. We don't take being at odds with the brother and sister in Christ seriously. Because for us, it's commonplace. I grew up, um, I grew up in churches. Um, I, I was trying to think about this earlier, but about every three years, the churches that my family were a part of, and we bounced around, split. So a church split is common to me. It happened several times when I was growing up. And in my 32 years of life, I've known many Christians who got mad at another Christian and refused to speak to them for years. And I think as Christians, we, I think as, uh, as far as with Jesus, even though we know that, it's, that that's not supposed to, uh, the things are supposed to be that way, that we often don't take it as seriously as we're called to. But going back to how I began at the beginning, um, if we saw this as one of the greatest threats to the mission of God, one of the greatest threats to the church, 
then we would take this much more seriously. This is a complaint. This isn't a theological disagreement. This, this is one Christian being upset that another Christian didn't, didn't uh, treat them properly or overlooked them or neglected them. And they have hurt feelings, and the apostles deal with it. They take it very seriously, and they address it. Are there divisions and problems and fights and grudges that you're in the midst of right now that you're comfortable with? That you're happy overlooking? It's easier now just to avoid it than it is to readdress what happened three months ago. And if you're in that situation, you are not following what the apostles did and you're not following what Jesus would call you to do. And, might I add... But that might be the greatest obstacle to your witness to your non-Christian friends whom you want to come to know Jesus. The second thing I noticed is why I belabored the fact that, that they chose Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Um, I belabored that because, to me, it, it seems like the apostles didn't just deal with the problem. They dealt with how the Christians felt. Um, the reason that's important to me, it, it, this is most clear to me in marriage, um, where... Um, if, if, if you don't know this, um, marriage is great. You, I'm glad you guys got engaged. But you, you end up having a lot of fights. <laughs> um, and a lot more fights when you're married, this is fair. A lot more fights when you're married than when you're dating. Um, and so uh, w- one thing that I've, I've had to fight against in my, in, in my marriage, in all my relationships, but it, it's most clear to me in my marriage, um, is that if I think I've done nothing wrong, then I have no responsibility. And I'm usually not wrong, you know. So I usually don't have many other uh, So, um, in general, I find that if we feel like we've done nothing wrong, then we are more comfortable with division. We're okay that they're upset or offended. Let me just say that here the apostles didn't just solve the problem. They made sure that they dealt with the problem in a way that took seriously that the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians had hurt feelings, felt neglected. And he wanted that to be dealt with just like the problem is dealt with. If your brother or sister in Christ is upset with you and they are wrong about the reason they're upset with you, you are not off the hook. You are not without responsibility in this. Because you should care about their feelings. You should care that they are offended even if you did nothing wrong. Um, The third thing that I I see here um, is... uh, that the, the apostles trusted godly people with difficult problems. And, and the, this is just in brief. But a lot of you are in situations that would be much better off if you found somebody you both respected, whom you trusted uh, to be a godly person, make godly decisions, and took the problem to them. That's just for free, and I'll do that quickly. And by the way, um, notice, notice that... that um, Notice that the resume of a person, that what the apostles looked at, and by extension I think what God looks at, is much different than what we look at. That what they care about here is that this person is obviously directed by God's Spirit and is known. Notice the men of repute, that they're known to be directed by God's Spirit. And you should seek those type of people out, men and women, who can help guide you in, the, in, in these difficult situations. And the last thing um, is, notice that the apostles in this situation, and that the Christians in general, had to care more about the mission of God than about their own um, rights, their own feelings, um, uh, kind of their own um, accusations. That, can you imagine, you know, I often think about this, being um, what it would have been like to be uh, 
uh, Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christian and be in a situation where um, you're being accused of something that you feel you didn't do and the apostles solve it by choosing people from the other group to, to uh, administer the food and you would kind of maybe be tempted to feel a stinging rebuke. Like this is the apostles agreeing that we've done something wrong that's really our fault. And what I find instructive here is that the way that, that um, uh, the way I think that, that someone in that situation would have had to deal with this situation, would have had to deal with that, is to trust that God's kingdom advancing, God, God's church advancing, the division going away is more important than me feeling like I need to have a seat at the table, or me feeling like I need, not, that's a bad metaphor because of the situation, but me feeling like I needed to be a part of the decision making. That these uh, Jewish Christians were willing to kind of relinquish control of the distribution, if that's what it meant for the divisions to end, because that's what needed to happen for the kingdom of God to go forward. Do you love the mission of God enough that you're willing to swallow your pride, maybe even, even kind of um, uh, deal with some of the pain that's been caused, and seek unity? Because in this situation the apostles were, in this situation the Jewish Christians were, in this situation the, the, um, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were too. Because they all knew that if God's kingdom was going to go forward, and if we were to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, then we had to be one and we had to be united and all these divisions had to go away. And I think we can all admit that we need that and I think we can all confess that we struggle to take it seriously and to deal with the divisions in our life, the divisions in our relations, and the divisions in this ministry like we need to. But if we're going to be witnesses of Jesus to the world around us, we have to take that seriously, and we have to be.